Okay, guys, uh, go ahead and grab your seat. Sam, uh, will you go ahead and come up here? Well, guys, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke 8. We're going to be in Luke 8 this morning, verses 26 through 39. Uh, If you have your phone, you can pull it up on your phone. And I'm going to ask you when we're done, the same thing we've been talking about, the same way we've been starting these sermons all all spring. Maybe you're getting tired of it by now, but that's okay because we're going to keep doing it. I'm going to ask you what from this passage are you curious about, okay? So it'll be up here on the screen. You can follow along here. Pull it up in your own Bi- or pull it up in your own Bibles. Open it, to it, open to it in your own Bibles. Pull it up on your phone, uh, and I'm going to ask you afterwards, what in this passage are you curious about? And I will just tell you, there are plenty of things to be curious about in this passage. So, uh, Sam, go ahead and go ahead and read it for us. All right, this is the word of the Lord from Luke chapter eight. Then they sailed to the country of Gennesarenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons for a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs when he saw Jesus he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice what have you to do with me Jesus son of the most high God I beg you do not torment me for you had uh, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for many a time it had seized him He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who seen it told uh, them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gennesarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with a great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had had gone begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God had done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Lord, there are so many questions that we have, uh, so many questions I have coming to the story uh, about what it means and, uh, Lord, what it's saying, what you're saying to us through it. And, Lord, what we trust is that you desire and delight to speak to your children. So we come to you. Father, with open hands and open hearts this morning, uh, would you soften our minds and our spirits to receive what you have for us? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what questions do you have after uh, hearing this text read, after reading this text together? 
Yeah, why do they sail in the opposite direction of Galilee? What happened to the demons when the pigs died? Yeah, why does Jesus ask a question that Jesus may already know the answer to, right? When he asks what the demon's name is. Yeah, when he asks what is your name, was he talking to the man or to the demons? Yeah, what is a demon? What is the abyss, right? Did God create those things? What is going on there? Why is the man naked? Right? Why did the demon not want to go into the abyss? Why? Yeah, what's the deal with all the pigs in Israel to begin with? Could they see the demons? Go into the pigs? Is this still a thing? Yeah. What happened to the man after? Yeah, did it hurt when the demons left? Why didn't Jesus let the man follow him? Why are the people so afraid? Yes. <laughs> yes, right? Why did, the de- why did Jesus give the demons what they wanted? Guys, I'm glad that everyone's ready for the questions this morning. This is amazing participation. I love it. Uh, So many things to be curious about, right? And we're not going to touch on all those questions this morning, and that's not even the point of the sermon. Uh, That's really not even the point of coming to church. The point of what we're doing here is not to get every single one of your questions about God answered. The point of what we're doing this morning is to come and to hear from God and to ask him, Lord, what do you want to speak to me out of this text? And that one of the places he does that in is, our, is, is in and through the questions, a, a questioning and a curious heart that we would bring to him as we come to his word. And what we're going to look at this morning is, in this passage, uh, the power of evil. Remember the power of evil? We're going to talk about the power of Jesus, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to proclaim that to the world. So the power of evil, the power of Jesus, and proclaiming that to the world. And we will answer some of the questions that you, that you asked, but we will not answer all of them. And that's okay. Uh, the invitation is that we would keep asking those and talking about them together. So uh, this question first, or, or this, this, I think the first thing we have to address here is the power of evil that we see at work in this passage. And I want to ask you a question. Um, do you believe in evil? Like, do you believe that evil is a real thing? And I would say more and more, even, I think that that's something that people are saying yes to. That we're saying to our world, yes, people in our world, our world is saying, yes, evil is a real thing. And we see it in things like uh, systematic injustice, right? That's evil. We see it, uh, we see it in, in war, we see it in, uh, kind of the suffering that's happening all around us. We see evil all around us. And, and yet, what we often do with, with this idea of evil is that we use it as a, as a category or as a label to kind of dump things into. 
it's a way that we like to characterize uh, a lot of times opposing views, right? We, we use it a lot in conjunction with the issues of the day. That, that evil gets connected to concepts, it gets connected to actions even, to ideas, and, and that's all true, but what it does is it keeps evil in this very kind of abstract realm. It, it makes evil this thing that we can talk about, but we don't ever have to interact with. And what this passage does is it, it jolts us out of that way of thinking. What it confronts us with is the reality of evil and its presence in our day-to-day lives. Because the evil that we see in this passage is active. It's concrete. And it's in our world. And I, it seems weird to be talking about this today. Like driving here, it's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, the weather is amazing. We're in here, you all look great, right? And, and, it, and yet, what we're saying is that in the midst of this world that is so beautiful, there is something that's so broken. And not just broken, but something that's bent uh, toward destruction. That's actively pursuing uh, death and destruction, uh, destro- destroying people and relationships and life. And if we are going to be a people who are who are going to navigate this world, navigate the reality of our world, that's something that we have to acknowledge. It makes me. It makes me think of. Um, the pothole situation in Nashville, right? Which is bad. Uh, I don't know if you've ever driven down Cajal, uh, maybe in the last several months until like earlier this week. Potholes all over the road, right? And people drive like it's Mario Kart. Always trying to avoid, have you ever driven down to Cajal like this? And you're, you're trying to avoid all the potholes? Because once you've driven down at once, you know that they're there. And so when you're there, when you're driving down Cajal, you're aware of trying to dodge those things and get around them. It's true when you're getting on to Ellington from the Spring Street entrance, right? There's this huge ditch in the side of the road. And so you're calculating, okay, how am I going to get onto this on-ramp and avoid the potholes and not get rear-ended by someone zipping up behind me? That because you're aware of the danger that is around you in your world to you and to your car, right? You're constantly making adjustments to that, but you're engaged in the reality that is all around you. If you just denied that potholes existed in Nashville, you would have a major problem. You would have flat tires all of the time. And it, it almost sounds silly to me to use that as a comparison because we're talking about something that's so much darker than that. But again, because we treat evil in this abstract way, it's easy for us to think of it as as something that doesn't really impinge on our day-to-day lives. And it does. It's like potholes. It's there all the time. All the time it's working to kill and steal and destroy is what Jesus says is true about evil. And that evil, it's not a force out in the world, but it's personified in spiritual beings. And we could get into a whole conversation about that, and that's that's not the sermon for this morning. But what this, what this passage confronts us with is that that's real. That evil uh, is a real thing. And is that hard for us to admit? Kind of in our sterilized, educated uh, world? 
it's not at all how we're taught to think. And we're taught to think about, about our world as this natural world where there's kind of no spiritual realm, and if there is a God, he's good, and that's kind of all that we need to know. But friends, that worldview cannot account for the world as we experience it. Can it? Right? All, all that we have to do is look at the last century of humanity. Right? Two world wars with untold amounts of devastation. Think of things like, uh, like the Holocaust, like the Rwandan genocide. You think about apartheid in South Africa. All of these can only, they, they, they have to be explained. To say that they come from natural forces is, is simply not a satisfying answer. It's evil. And that evil that's a work out in the world and in these events and, and the issues is the same evil that is present in our day-to-day lives working against us. And what it does to us is what it has done to this man in this passage. That evil in this man's life, it, it made a promise to him of power. And this man has it. He can break the chains that hold him and yet that promise of power has actually enslaved him. That's what evil does. It makes promises to us that it can't keep. That's what sin does. And sin and evil are connected, right? That it makes promises to us that it can't keep. If you think about, uh, if we just use greed as an example, we use money as an example, that money in itself is not a bad thing, but our desire for more and more of it all the time will lead us to doing all kinds of things that are not good for us and for the world around us. That greed brings destruction into our own selves, into our relationships, and into our world. And yet what it's always promising us is just a little bit more and you'll have what you need to be safe, to be comfortable, to be in control. It promises power, but what it brings us is captivity. That's what evil does. That the evil that we see in this passage, it is, it is renamed this man. To the question of who is Jesus speaking to when he says, what is your name? Is it to the man or is it to the demons? Um, it's unclear. And the reason that it's unclear is because this man's identity has become unclear. That evil has warped his identity that he doesn't know who he is anymore. That's what evil does to us. That's what sin does to us. It makes us forget who God created us to be. It challenges and changes. It warps our identity. That we start to identify with all of the things that we have done wrong in our lives. That our past, what, it, what, what we have done and what has been done to us comes to define us. And, and we let it name us. That's evil. Evil loves to get in there and use that and whisper it to us and give us a new name. Evil also isolates us. Right, that's, what the, that's what these demons do to this man. They drive him out amongst the tombs where no one else is around him. He's all alone. And that's what evil is constantly doing. That's what our enemy is constantly doing. He's trying to push us into a place of believing that we are all alone. That if anyone knew what you were actually like, um, so keep it to yourself. 
that it would be possible that we would even come in here on Sunday mornings and experience that. But if the people who were here knew who I really was, who knows, I'll just keep it to myself. No, that, that is the enemy. That what he wants to do, his strategy is to get you alone. And he will tell you whatever lies he needs to tell you to keep you alone. But the man cries out, or the demons cry out, or the mix of them cry out in this passage to Jesus, do not torment me. They cry out, do not torment me, because all they understand is torment, because that's what evil does to us. It torments us. What are you tormented by? And we see evil in one other place in this passage, and, and we have to talk about it. It's not only in the man and what evil has done to him, but it's in what evil has done to the people of this town who have become so comfortable with the evil around them that when it is finally cast out and done away with, that they are even more upset and afraid that they would rather their world stay the way that it is with the evil all woven into it than see their friend delivered from evil. And aren't we pulled into that all the time? But it is just easier for us to live with our eyes closed to say that the evil is not, it's not around us. We don't want to see it. We don't want to see it in our city. We don't want to see the injustice. We don't want to see it in the suffering of the people around us and that we're tempted to compromise with it just like the people here. To make peace with it and just learn to live with it. And right into the middle of all of that, Jesus comes and he blows it all up. The power of Jesus comes in and blows all of that up. As soon as he steps off the boat in this town, he is confronted with the evil. And so there's this massive throwdown now between Jesus and these demons. And the, the focus of this passage is not on the demons. The focus is on the power of Jesus. That's what this passage is trying to help us see is the power of our Jesus. When he asks the name, uh, what is your name, Legion, for we are many? Uh, a legion in the Roman. So a legion was the most powerful military uh, invention of the time. It was the way the Romans marched into battle. They would go in with all of these uh, divisions of, of 6,000 soldiers, heavily armored, heavily trained, uh, ready to devastate the enemy. And so when Jesus asks, what's your name? It says, Legion. It's painting this picture of this massive spiritual confrontation. That you've got this huge group, this thousands of demons that are armed to the teeth, that are disciplined, that are trained, that are ready to go into battle, facing off against Jesus. That's the picture spiritually of what's happening here. And if you were taking odds by the numbers, you're not going to put it on Jesus, right? It looks lopsided. And yet, this legion comes to Jesus not for a fight. Immediately, it comes to Jesus begging that what you see is that Jesus has this intrinsic authority and power that is far greater than any evil in the world. It's like when your dog is doing something you don't want your dog to do, and you kind of raise your eyebrow at your dog, you know, and the dog responds immediately. Has that ever happened to anybody? I don't have a dog, but I've heard that that is the thing that happens. Uh, 
I've seen it some with children, so I can attest that there are some similarities, okay? That there's this, author- there's this authority, right, that you have in this dog's life that it immediately responds to uh, without even any threats being made because it's aware of where the authority is. That's what we're talking about here is that kind of authority that doesn't have to be proved that's known. And the demons come to Jesus and recognize his authority. And do you know how he fights them? Well, let's take a step back for a second. So there are these other kind of texts that come out of about this in the century or two around this time of Jesus of other uh, Jewish exorcists. And the stories are bananas, okay? So these exorcists are using amulets, 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 right? Like necklaces and, and little metal things. They're using incantations and spells. They're, they're having bargaining sessions with demons. They're pulling demons out of people's noses. It's crazy, kind of like fantastical stuff. That's not what happens here, is it? Jesus speaks a word and they leave. That's the power of Jesus. That he speaks and the demons obey him. That's the power of Jesus that's manifested in this passage. And the power that Jesus has here, he uses it, he leverages all of it for the benefit of this man to deliver him from evil. Isn't that what we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from evil. That's what Jesus is doing for this man. The people come and they find him clothed and in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's a man who's been transformed. That all of this power of Jesus has been focused on this man and and delivering him from evil. And it's changed him. He's gone from from being naked to being clothed. From being out of control to being in his right mind. I mean, just think about the deliverance of that. That when we look around and see uh, mental illness in ourselves and in the world around us, man, that is something that we are praying for deliverance for uh, from all the time. And Jesus heals this man's mind. This man who's been alone for years is sitting at the feet of Jesus in relationship with him. That Jesus has leveraged all of this power to love this man, to change him, to transform him, to heal him. So we have this power of evil that uses that uses its power to steal and to kill and destroy, and an even greater power, the power of Jesus, that comes in to love, to heal, to transform. And that power is also still at work today. As much as there is evil in the world, the power of Jesus is still at work, and the power of Jesus is still greater than the power of evil in our world. It's true. And we have something that this man didn't have. We have the deliverance that Jesus has already purchased for us, purchased for us from evil through the cross. This is what Colossians 2.15 says. It says, he disarmed, the, this is speaking about Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the spiritual powers of darkness in our world. He says, he's, Paul says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame 
by triumphing over them. He did it in the cross. That what happened at the death of Jesus is one, a lot of things happened, okay, with the death of Jesus. One of the things that happened is that the spiritual powers in this world were put on notice that they have been defeated and that the, a power that is greater than them is now on the scene and has secured a victory over them. And while that victory has not been totally played out, it's a victory that has already been achieved and it's a victory that's assured and it's a victory that is coming. That's what happened on the cross. That the victory was sealed and we're waiting for the day when Jesus comes back when it comes most fully. The best, I think, analogy I've heard for this uh, is D-Day during World War II, right? So, you guys know I'm a history nerd, so just go with me here for a second, okay? So at this point, right, the Nazis have taken over all of continental Europe. Germany has covered all of it. And there's this, these very bleak moments where it looks like that's kind of the end game. That if they want, you know, Britain is just a, just a stone's throw away. And it's kind of game over. And so there's this plan. What are we going to do? How, do we, how are we going to get a foothold to liberate and free all of these people from this horrible evil in the world? So there's this plan of landing troops in the middle of a heavily fortified area on the coast of northern France. And so this invasion is launched in June of 1944. And the Allies are able to establish this beachhead. They're able to break through the German defenses and, and uh, establish kind of a safe place where they can start to land troops and supplies and ammunition, all of that stuff. And what historians will tell you is that that was the moment when the tide turned. That the, that the momentum went from being in favor kind of of the, of the Nazis into in favor of the Allies. And that victory was coming. Now, there were all kinds of battles that had to be fought between D-Day and the end of World War II. All kinds of work that had to be done. But that day was coming, even to the point where the leader of those countries, right, so that would be Stalin and Truman and Churchill, they were getting together, having these conferences, talking about what are we going to do with the world when this thing is over? So they're planning for the new world while the war is going on because they're so confident and assured of the victory that's coming. That's a taste of what is true for us. That what Jesus has done is he's promised, I've defeated evil in this world. That if you are in Christ, it has no power over you. It can't take anything from you. Your spiritual enemy can, can in no way harm you. Does he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? He's not going to be able to devour you, but what he will try to do is scare you with his roar. That he's known as a father of lies. That's constantly his tactic, is to lie, to lie, to lie, to lie, to tell you that you are not who Christ has told you that you are. That what he loves to do is whisper to you that you are not forgiven. What he loves to whisper is that there are things that you can do that will keep God far from you. That God is actually against you. That God may actually leave you. Constantly lying to you. And so the battle that we're joined in then is the battle to remind ourselves and remind each other of what is true. That's, what's, that's, what, that's what spiritual warfare is all about, is holding on to reminding ourselves what is true about us because of what Jesus has done for us.
which takes us to the proclaiming. What has Jesus done for you? Did you guys talk about that in your small groups this week? I think that was one of the questions on our discussion guide. What has Jesus done for you? Okay, now, we know one of the things Jesus has done for us, right? He's delivered us from death and from hell. That is something Jesus has done for us. And if we are in Christ, he's done that for all of us. That's true. That is certainly worth celebrating by itself, isn't it? Yeah, that is good news. Jesus has done that for us. Praise God. And, and more specifically, though, what has Jesus done for you? What has that looked like in your life? What has Jesus delivered you from? The other day I had somebody ask me, hey, how did you get to Nashville? And I, I have a hard time telling that story without talking about what Jesus has done for me in my life. But I was at the gym, and so I was like, I don't know if I can talk about Jesus here. <laughs> but what I was aware of, what I was reminded of, is uh, what Jesus has done for me. when I think about uh, doing this job and how it pushes against so many of my own fears in my life. Like, oh, what has Jesus done for me? He's delivered me from a lot of fear. And he's doing it. What has Jesus done for you? What is he doing for you, delivering you from and that we would be aware of that? Oh, guys, it's so important. Because Jesus tells this man, go out and proclaim to your home, to your friends, uh, how much God has done for you. But for us to do that, we've got to know what it is that God has done for us, right? Like in a personal way. This is what Revelation 12, 11 tells us. It says, and they conquered him by the blood. This is our enemy, how we conquer our enemy. We conquer our enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We conquer him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. What is our testimony? What has Jesus delivered you from? And that what we desire to be in East Nashville, we've talked about this before, is that we would be a congregation of worship and of witness in, of, and for East Nashville. And we're living part of that out right now, right, as we worship the Lord together, as a congregation of worship. But that what happens in here, the worship that we give to God, the worship that we are shaped by, would also shape the way that we interact with the world around us and would lead us to be a people of witness who would testify, who would tell the stories of what Jesus has done for us. And I just want to, can we just break that down for a minute? Because uh, I think sometimes if you've, maybe you've been in church for a long time, and when you hear the, the word testimony, um, what comes to mind for you is like this very specific formula for how you share the details of your life, right? It's like another way of saying your life story. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you would sit down with someone and say, hey, what's your testimony? And they're like, well, here's my life story. Hey, what's your testimony? Here's your life story. That's great. That's very important that you would be able to look at your life and see these, this is the story that Jesus has written for me. But I think sometimes what that can do is it can box us in and make us feel like, man, if I can't tell you everything that Jesus has ever done in my life, I can't really share my testimony with you. Wow, what a burden that is, huh? That in order to talk about Jesus, we have to share every piece of it all the time. 
No wonder we never talk about it. What if when we're talking about witness, we're, we are sometimes talking about that, but what if we're also talking about in our day-to-day lives, being able to acknowledge with the people around us the things that Jesus is consistently doing for us or has done for us? Like being at the gym and someone asking you, how did you get to Nashville? And being able to say, you know what? It's kind of a crazy story, but I really feel like the Lord brought me here. I'm just thinking about that interaction. There's something that feels a little bit weird about it. Okay, even now. Uh, but being a people of witness is being a people who are, who are working to figure out, Lord, how are you calling us to testify to what you have done and are doing in our lives in, a, in, a, in our normal, everyday interactions? We would proclaim the goodness of our Jesus toward us. And that in doing that, in testifying to the people around us, that is not only in encouraging uh, God willing to them in some way, but also is such a reminder for us of what Jesus has done. Because, friends, we need to be reminded of that all the time, don't we? Man, I, I, I always need to be reminded of what my Jesus has done and is doing for me. So let's do that together. And one of the ways that we do that together is through communion. So we're going to take communion now. Uh, if you don't have one of these, uh, in a minute we're going to sing a song and you can go and grab one in the back. Uh, but first I'm just going to explain to you what we are doing here. So uh, when we take communion or the Lord's Supper, we talk about this as a moment where we remember and we proclaim. We remember and we proclaim. One of the things that we remember when we come to the Lord's table is what Jesus has done for us. And the cost that Jesus paid for us. Because the cost of being delivered from evil is high. The cost of this man being delivered from evil uh, was uh, 2,000 pigs. Which just, as a side note, was a serious economic uh, burden on this community to have these pigs that they had cared for for a long time run themselves off into the water and drown. And commentators have different ideas about this, but part of what they think is the, the, some of the reason why the people were asking Jesus to leave is because uh, they were so uh, upset about the fact that they had lost this major investment. And what we see here is that Jesus' value on people is so much higher than Jesus' value on anything else. And we see that most clearly at the cross. That Jesus would say his love for his people is so great that there is nothing that would stand in the way of his coming for them and delivering them. That there is nothing that would stand in the way of your Jesus coming for you and delivering you because of his great love for you. So that's what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper is what it cost our God to come and deliver us. And that's why part of this is is, uh, being willing to admit where our sin is. So in a moment, when, when we uh, sing this first song, I'll invite you. Would you ask the Lord, Lord, would you show me uh, where does evil have a foothold in my life? Where am I being tormented? And would you turn that over to him? Ask, Lord, are there places that I have made peace with evil in my life? And that you would turn that over to him in repentance. That's part of what we do here at the table is we remember what the Lord has done for us and allow that remembering to show us who we are and what's going on in our hearts. 
So we remember and then we also proclaim. We don't sit in our sin, but we remind ourselves not only of what what we have done, but what Jesus has done for us. And we proclaim the freedom that we now have as the children of God, that evil has been defeated, that it has no hold over us. That's what we're proclaiming when we come to the Lord's Supper, is all of the promises of God are yes for you in Jesus Christ. That's what we're proclaiming here. That evil has no power, that the power of Jesus for you and over your life is so much greater than that. We remember and we proclaim. And if you're here and uh, you you haven't uh, surrendered your life to Jesus, if you haven't asked him to deliver you from evil, uh, then this meal is not for you right now. We pray that it will be someday very soon. Uh, but this meal is to remember what Jesus has done for us and to proclaim that. And if that's not a place that you are, I would invite you to, to as we're kind of engaging in this, to sit and to think, to meditate and to pray, to ask the Lord to show himself to you. And if there are places in your heart where you are saying to the Lord, no, I am actually going to treasure this evil and I'm going to keep it. And I, wanna, and I want uh, you, but I also want this evil and I'm going to hold on to both of them that what the warning that Paul would give us in 1 Corinthians is don't come to the table right now. Because co- when we come to Jesus, we, uh, he's coming to drive the evil out of us, to free us. And if we're fighting against that, trying to hold on to it, that this, that this meal is not for us right now because love demands all of us. But if you were coming and saying to Jesus, Jesus, take it all. You can have it all. I surrender it to you because, Lord, I desire, I need your deliverance. Then come running to this table. And if the reason that you, uh, you, f- you feel that uh, the, the shackles of sin and evil in your life is because of the sin that weighs heavily on you, bring that to the table too. This table is not for perfect people, friends. It is for people who know that they need to be delivered. And if that is you, then yes, come and eat and drink. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you would, go ahead and fold down the kneelers that are in front of you. You don't have to use them, but I want them to be available for you if you want to. We're going to sing a few songs here at the end. Uh, So I'm going to invite our our worship team to come up. Uh, We're going to sing one song, and we just invite you to reflect. And then we'll take uh, the bread together. There'll be a chance for us to continue to pray, to sing, to respond to the Lord, to proclaim. Then we'll take the juice together, and then there'll be a final song where we get to celebrate and remember what God has done for us. Okay, let me pray. Hmm. Father, we come to you in a moment of uh, clarity. Lord, and admit that we uh, are so slow to believe in the evil that is around us. And yet, Lord, are so thankful uh, that you have been protecting us from it this whole, pre- protecting us from it this whole time anyway. Lord, there are so many places in my heart, in our hearts, where we have made peace with the lies of the enemy, made peace with the evil in us and the world around us. Lord, and ask it as we come to you, uh, Lord, that you would that you'd be showing us the places in our hearts that you desire to bring us freedom. Lord, the places that you desire us to walk in the freedom you've already purchased for us. Would you be gentle, Lord, and faithful 
uh, to show us those things that teach us to remember. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.